uh, as people trickle in, I want to give you just a quick update as we're talking about church, and we'll talk uh, next week about a little bit of broader Presbyterian church history, then the next week about PCA church history. Yesterday, we had what's called presbytery, uh, which is the actual the Greek word for elder, and it, what it means for us is it's a regional group of pastors and the churches in a local area, essentially from Chapel Hill all the way to the coast. And uh, we had um, two commissioners, two elders we sent, Dan Kemp and Mike Newkirk and Ross and myself were there. And it was a great time. It was down in New Bern. And really throughout the day, the big things that happened is we uh, were able to examine a man who was transferring to be a pastor of Harvest Church uh, out on the coast. And then we began part of the process for ordaining uh, a man who's working at Midtown Church. Those were kind of the big things. And then another at the end, just uh, we released a committee that had been set up to, to care and to shepherd for a church and their session and some people who had gone through a hardship and had a, a trial to kind of determine if had something been done wrong. And that often has hurt relationships. And so they had worked to try to do that. Um, so those are some of the things that go on during Presbyterian. We ate some good barbecue and had some fun around lunch, but it was, uh, again, just to give you an idea of how the church actually works out in process in our polity. But again, next week, um, you'll hear church history kind of on Presbyterianism uh, in general, and then you'll hear about PCA church history the following week. I want to start this morning, again, it's the 50th anniversary of, the, of our denomination, and different people have kind of given testimonies, kind of what's your PCA church story? And I'd like you to listen to K.A. Ellis about her story. I believed on Christ later in life, later than most people. And so when I was about 25 years old, I gave my life to the Lord. And so when I realized I believed, the Lord um, quickly exposed me to a fairly adventuresome life of um, traveling through Eastern Europe, seeing life after the Iron Curtain had just fallen, seeing people sort of come out of darkness into open faith. And that really pressed on my heart a serious burden for the church underground, for the persecuted church, and for the invisible church around the world. I had uh, ended up in Vancouver uh, under the, the leadership of a pastor named John Smed, and the Lord had created through John a community of believers that lived very much like I had seen um, in the persecuted church and the underground church with the, maybe not the cultural pressures, but certainly the priorities, and that was very appealing to me. John mentored me, trained me, he and his wife um, uh, discipled me very well, and um, challenged me to go to seminary. And uh, so I went to Westminster and uh, got a degree in theology and uh, have ended up in PCA churches, continuing to stay in PCA churches because of their value on the word, uh, their high value of scripture, their high value of uh, the sacraments, high value of a community, and um, a willingness to pay the cultural price for not compromising in culture. And that is something I think that we're going to very much need in the coming days. Um, I certainly don't use the language that America is coming under persecution, but I do think that we're seeing a rise in anti-Christian hostility. And the truth and um, valuing the word is gonna be an enormous benefit 
to every believer who stands in the face of a culture that just does not want to hear the name of Jesus Christ. A whole lot of videos from different people, different perspectives, kind of their PCA story. It's on the PCA website uh, on the 50th anniversary. And uh, one, I just wanted you to get to hear her and uh, some of the themes she talked about kind of are woven into what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you would get my PowerPoint up there for us, Brian. Um, so again, want to take just a minute to, since we've had a few weeks off from this topic and uh, just review from where we started. Really, we want to learn to love the glorious bride of Christ. We're talking about the neglected doctrine of the church and uh, some of the goals for the class. We wanted to put before the biblical portrait and teaching of the church towards these ends, that you would, it would awaken or deepen your love for the church, the bride of Christ which then is going to increase your love for Jesus, the bridegroom, and then hopefully help you embrace the privilege and responsibilities of being a part of the local church. And it really needs to flow in that direction uh, as we begin to understand these things. So some of the questions we've been asking throughout the class is, what is the church? Why does the church exist? What's God's grand plan for people locally, worldwide, and eternally? And what role could the local church play in our spiritual well-being? We spent quite a bit of time talking about different images that the Bible uses for the church, and we did not exhaust them by any means, not only the list of them, but the depth of the ones that we did look at. And we saw that from beginning throughout the scriptures, the assembly of God's people, even as it began in Israel, uh, they were the people of God, the church. And so really when you read the Old Testament and you hear Israel and the nation, you can read the church. It's the people of God, the assembly of God. Uh, the beloved, the temple, the family in particular, where Christ is the head, that's going to be a significant image that has a role in our understanding of the class today. Uh, the bride, which is at the heart of this class, it's the flock with Jesus being the good shepherd, uh, the kingdom of Christ, the fellowship, the spirit, all those have different emphases and applications for us. And one of the things we talked about is that one of the challenges can be that one or two of those might really resonate with you and others not as much. And so your view of the church might be a little bit narrow and, and think, well, this is what the real church should be. And then someone else is like, well, no, the church should really be these two things, you know, and it should be, no, it should be this one instead of realizing, no, we're a body who has different parts and facets and passions and that together make us whole. So we don't want all thumbs or all feet or all, all mouths or all noses. We really want this diverse group of people and passions and understanding of empathy. So it's a, it's a really important and beautiful picture for us. Uh, today we're going to talk about attributes of the church, and um, for sake of time, I, I wanted to kind of do it one way, but I'm going to do it differently. Um, but let's just, I'm going to throw it out. What kind of, what attributes, if you think about the church, what are some attributes or characteristics? Sean already talked about the marks of the church, kind of what are the things that make you recognize what is a true church, the true preaching of the Word of God, the uh, application and use of the sacraments, as well as loving, proactive, and reactive discipline. So we're not necessarily talking about the things we do, but how would you describe what are characteristics or attributes of the church? Anyone want to take a stab at some? 
Everyone's still sleepy and not courageous enough. All right. All right, community. Yeah, that's great. Teaching and learning. Yes. Welcoming. Ooh, that got really weird. Reaching out to the community. Yes. Truth telling. Yeah. Caring. Mm -hmm. Grace. Yes. Holy, yeah. Sinners? Yes, sadly. That is a characteristic. Sinners and saints. Holy Catherine. I did not plant him this morning, but yes. Uh, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. I'll pay you later. Um, anyone know where that comes from? Close, not exactly the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Some parts of it are in the Apostles' Creed, but that particular phrase is actually in the Nicene Creed. Uh, so the church has actually been making this particular statement since 451 AD. Now, it was in incipient form in the Council of Nicaea in 325, which then got modified and uh, amended a little bit in Constantinople. Constantinople in 481, and then, um, or 381, and then 451 um, at Chalcedon. And all these councils were the broader church responding to false teaching. So what they were doing is saying, hey, there's a problem in the church. We have to put up guardrails and clarify and make distinctions about problems that we're facing. And so at different times, there were problems about the church, or the deity of Christ, or the humanity of Christ, or the the work of the Holy Spirit. There's been different things along the way. And these councils have come together as the broader church and said, hey, we need to put some clarity, put some stakes in the ground against what's true and what's not true. So what I want to do this morning is spend some time talking about each of these attributes and some of the applications for them. And uh, we're going to, well, just these four really summarize much of the New Testament teaching and really are important to our understanding of the church. They're significant. And they unite us really with the historic church throughout the ages, which is something we often don't do well uh, in kind of modern evangelicalism. So, all right. An apostolic church. What does that mean? Essentially that the church is built on the teaching of the apostles. Uh, we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one because I think in many ways this is the one that we can go through quickly, and we'll be like, yes. So what do we mean by that? Acts 2.42, which is the number for which we get this room, the 2.42 room, uh, is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, uh, meeting together, the prayers, and the, and the breaking of bread. Uh, Ephesians 2.20 says that the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets. So the church has been established by these eyewitnesses to the life of Christ Jesus as what is the foundational to the teaching of the church. And so another way of saying it is that it's a biblical church, that we want to be committed to the word of God that has been handed down to us. And so as one of uh, my professors said, the foundational doctrine and order of the church have been established by apostolic authority. Uh, now, what that means is it's all of them in toto to the church from God. It's not just Peter, and then the organization that some would say is Peter. That's where we're going to get into some distinction. What's the 
the Catholic Church, little c, with the Catholic Church, capital C. Uh, but uh, at the very heart, we want to, and hopefully we talk about it in this way, that we want to be a church that in our worship reads the Bible, prays the Bible, sings the Bible, reads the Bible, sees the Bible in the sacraments. And that in all of our ministries, in some way, shape, or form, they're rooted in the truth of the scriptures. So that's what we mean by apostolic. Um, any questions about that one before I kind of move on? All right. So what does that mean? What are some applications? Why is this attribute important? What difference will it make in a church? And I want you to kind of put your thinking caps on, because again, be like, oh yeah, one holy Catholic apostolic check, but, but so what? Why does this matter? Right, a church could move away into social causes and uh, drift away from the truth of the proclamation of the gospel. What else? Yeah. Right, it's going to be the foundation, the bedrock, not uh, an add-on or uh, an optional thing. It's at the very root of, upon which we build our faith, the biblical revelation of God. Uh, is given through these apostles and, and prophets and teachers of the, of the scriptures. Yes? Yeah, yeah. So he said, again, looking at the totality of scripture, not just one particular area, not just your particular bent, some personal applications, right? You should be people who are in the Word, who know the Word, who can trust the Word. And again, uh, Paul talked about the Bereans. He would go and he preached. He's like, yeah, the Bereans were great. They checked and made sure what I said was in line with the Scriptures. And so we want to not just be corporately people of the Scriptures, but also individually people of the Scriptures, rooted in the truth of God's Word. All right, Holy Church. Uh, apostolicity of the Church binds the Church to the truth of Christ, the holiness of the church manifests the fruit of that, not Ruth, but truth, in the life of Christ. So you could say it this way, apostolicity is orthodoxy, and holiness is orthopraxy, doing things in the right way, in the right practice. So it's not just that we have the right truth, we need to have the right lives. And so holiness uh, is both, it's really manifesting the truth and the reality of the gospel. I mean, one simple way to think about it is the fruit of the Spirit. If God's Spirit is in you, it should show fruit that causes you to live in the right way. When we have right truth and wrong living, they're in conflict, and that isn't what's supposed to happen in the Scriptures. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what that means. So the church is a people set apart by the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn there, or I'll read, and you can just listen along. And we could root ourselves in the whole book of Ephesians, which we studied a while ago. But listen to what Paul says as he writes the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So there's that ap ap apostolicity. Uh, he was one who was a witness. He said, born not like the others. He came later, but he had that revelation of God on the road to Damascus where Christ spoke to him. To the saints. That's literally to the holy ones is what it means. To the holy ones who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul's seeing these people as holy ones, as saints. And then if you turn 
well, verse 12, he says this, so that he is, uh, those who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, for in him you heard the word of truth and the gospel of salvation. We have this inheritance that would be made holy. And then in chapter 2, particularly in 14 to 22, he talks about how we're we're being made holy. We are one people. We're connected to him. And even in there, there's this sense of building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets that we're being made into the image of Christ, that we are new creatures. And in 1 Peter 2, he takes the passage in Exodus where he says, you're a holy people, uh, a royal nation, people belonging to God. And so there's this sense that people have been set apart, and that's significant, and this actually, hopefully, you'll maybe repeat this when we talk about the so what. It's our identity. It's our belonging. We are in Christ. We are set apart. We are saints. That's who you are. Instead of going around, and you know, we don't do it as much as some churches, but instead of saying, hey, Brother Sean, I could go, hey, St. Sean. You know? Hey, St. Louis. That's kind of funny. Come on, St. Louis, come on, people. Some of you are still asleep. All right. Um, and yet, and think about how that might change us. If, particularly the person who's kind of annoying you here this morning. Maybe it's actually the person sitting next to you. And look at them and go, oh, hey, saint, my wife, or my saint child, or my saint, whoever in the church who kind of annoys me. Do you see how it could change, how you see them? Instead of, oh, there's my sinner spouse, or my sinner pastor, or whatever it may be, right? How we view each other really does uh, make a difference. So we've been bought, the temple language there in Ephesians 2, that we don't have to go through this idea of propitiation and sacrifice. Again, propitiation is the wrath of God being poured out. Um, First Peter 2, now we're a people who have tasted mercy. I mean, this is rich stuff when we say we are the holy people of God. We are set apart. So that's one part. It's sometimes called definitive sanctification, where we are defined by our holiness. We are saints. But we're also sinners. We know that. So um, part of that is, so now not only are we saints, but we're set aside for a sacred purpose. And our purpose is to live for him to live for his glory, to reflect his glory, to reflect the image of Jesus. That's part of who we are. We're, we're saints who should be living as saints. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying in the whole, uh, in Paul's themes, right? He's, you've been redeemed by Christ, you're union, united with Christ, so then all the, all the commands then come, so live like Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have both identity and then also the calling. So the Lord sanctifies his church and and that means that's what we often think of as more often sanctification, progressive sanctification, becoming more holy, uh, dying to sin, becoming alive to Christ. Um, let me read to you from 1 Thessalonians uh, 5:23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Again, you as the church. So we want to remember there's this significantly corporate nature to sanctification how we love one another, forgive one another, serve one another, care for one another. But that also is always done in the context of personal uh, faith and repentance, um, that we have to be changing 
individually as well. So may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body, so our whole being, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I mean, what great news. Like, he already calls us saints. He says we're already dwelling in the heavenly places, and yet we're still sinful, still struggle. We're still like Jonah and Abraham and all of our fathers and mothers before us, but in the end, we're gonna, he's going to finish it, and we will be in reality what he is declaring and what he's working us towards. So again, our identity, our belonging to God, his belonging to us, our belonging to each other are significant applications from that. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.13 also um, has this to say, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. And again, so rich in there. Beloved and brothers, let's give thanks to the Lord for one another, particularly those who are, you're probably struggling with. We're first roots. He's going to sanctify us by the Spirit through truth. So there's the connection again, right? Through apostolic truth, by the work of the Spirit, the foundation of truth is going to make us holy, corporately and individually. Um, man, someone needs to check my typos. All right, what are some applications? Again, some of them I already threw out to you, but show me you're listening and that you have even more creativity and can come up with additional ways to apply this. Yeah, yeah, being a part of the church is not optional. We should be committed to one another. Yes. Yeah, we represent Christ to the world, and how will they know the, that we're followers of Jesus? By our, by our love. Yeah, by loving one another. How else does this apply? Yeah. Right. Being able to see each other, how, how Christ sees us positionally and one day in reality, right? Being able to see the hope of the good that's going to happen in the person in front of you, not just um, where they're still not sanctified and holy. Now, another application, that means we have to be involved in each other's lives, helping each other pursue Christ, pursue holiness, to, to love one another in truth and um, spur each other on to love and good deeds, um, which is really what we're doing in our community groups, our Bible studies, and our youth group, and all of our relationships. I mean, that's what we're seeking to do. All right. Did I turn it off? I think the battery is tired. All right, next slide then, please. Someone back there. You would do it manually. All right. Catholic Church. 
And I know for some of you, and we put it in the bulletin to help you, it doesn't mean Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the little c means universal church. Uh, and you can see that from Ephesians 2. Again, part of what I was going to do if we had had more time uh, was just to spend time in Ephesians 2, kind of tend through the rest of the chapter and help you kind of find these attributes. But without doing that, y'all kind of inherently have been taught and learned them and, and were able to share essentially those things. So listen again to Ephesians and think about what it means to be universal, particularly from this passage. So let's see. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to the God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's Paul saying in that passage? How is that uh, underlying and um, showing through the scriptures the reality of the universal Catholic Church? Who are the us and them in that passage? the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a lot of animosity, calling people dogs and awful things. And what has been torn down by the gospel? Yeah, that separation, that dividing wall. Uh, and even in the temple, there was the, the court of the Gentiles, and they couldn't go any farther. And then the Jews could go a little closer, and then the high priest could only go all the way in. So these things, this dividing wall has been torn down. There is no us and them. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We're all one in Christ. There's this universal aspect of the church. It includes people from all tribes, tongues, races, and nations. And it dispels and should dispel uh, all the alienation and reconciliation because of reconciliation. All right, if you would advance the, the next slide. All right, so in the Old Testament, throughout, there's this common theme of gathering the remnant of nations, pointing to the universality of the New Testament people of God. So always it's talking about going to the nations, witnessing to the nations, and you see people, whether it's Rahab or others, all being brought into the covenant people of God. So this isn't just a New Testament concept. This has been throughout the scriptures from the beginning. And Jesus himself saying, I'm going to find the other sheep. And he's talking particularly about the Gentiles. I'm going to go and bring them in. So this is a theme that's been through. And it's not merely geographic, but it's social dimensions as well. It's where I was talking from Colossians 3. There isn't Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So it's not only geographic unity, it's societal unity. 
and it transcends all those things that are barriers. Because union with Christ transforms all of the relationships. Think back to the images of the body. If Christ is the head, you're part of the same body. There's not multiple bodies. Now, yes, there are local denominations and there's different churches, nationality of churches, but ultimately the invisible church, which KL's talked about, that Dave talked about, is one church. And we often talk about the difference between an organism and an organization, that the church, the invisible church, is this body. Now there's the organization, there's denominations, and there's local churches. Um, and that has been prescribed by God to have organizational representation for local churches. But there is this sense that there is something broader and bigger than just our local church or our local denomination. So when they're talking about Catholic, that's what they're talking about. Would you go to the next slide? Next slide, please. All right. Now, you may have questions, but why, why would this be important? Where do we, how do we apply this? How, you, how, might we not, how might we deny the Catholicity of the church today? So let's try to apply this one and think about what it looks like. Yes, looking down on other denominations. Matt made a couple comments. Uh, if you happen to be in Sunday school or the service, I don't remember which one. I think it was probably in the Sunday school class. That actually applies to this. Anyone remember something in particular you said that's unique about being on the mission field versus being in the U.S.? What other ideas? I'll let you chew on that, and maybe you'll come up with it. If not, I'll tell you in a minute. But what? how are other ways we might deny Catholicity? How do most people choose, what are some of the things that people do to choose churches in the U.S.? What are the decision-making factors for them? Good or bad? What are some of them? Family history? Yeah. What else? Okay. Yeah. Do you like their music? Do they have the programs for your family? Is it local? Demographics? Yeah. The building? Yeah. Denomination, how might some of those things actually speak against Catholicity? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that gets to a whole other question that's a big debate. You know, what did Jesus mean when he said, I want my church to be united in John 17, 17, for them to be one? What does is, what is, uh, universality and oneness look like? We'll, we'll hopefully touch on that briefly. But now, let's remove ourselves. Let's go to Japan, where less than, what, a quarter of a percent uh, are even professing uh, Christians. What would my, how might your search for a church look differently there? Yeah, you hope you can have an option within an hour of your city, right? Maybe. Um, probably aren't going to find the music you like, or the youth group, or the children's ministry, or maybe even some of the theological convictions on some more important matters to you. But you're going to find other believers. So one of the things Matt said is, 
that to be a missionary, you have to learn how to work with other Christians. You don't have a choice because you don't have other partners. One of the blessings and the curses of the freedom of being in the U.S. is churches have become known by their distinctives and what their differences, and they sell those differences, promote them. Come to us because we have the thumping rock concert. Come to us because we have the traditional music that is better than the thumping rock music. Or come to us because we have the cool youth group now, or we don't have a youth group because it should all be families. Or you know, like we, we really look for those distinctions because we have the privilege because there's so many churches. Um, sometimes even how churches start or plant churches, and it's become less so, but you can deny Catholicity by saying, you know what, we're going to be a church that just goes after this group of people. Now, you may be a church and you just get a certain type of people, but that's different than saying our target audience is them and we don't really want to look at anybody else. Historically, the, the Catholicity of the church has been destroyed where people said, hey, you aren't welcome at our church because you aren't rich enough or because you don't have the right um, skin color or whatever. So there's been lots of different ways we can deny Catholicity. I would say particularly for the Reformed Church currently, this is a harder one for us to get our head around because we can be very proud of our theology and kind of say, well, you know, we, we're kind of, we kind of have it together. Maybe we do in some areas, but then if we're that proud, then we really don't have it together, right? Because there's not the humility. So I think it can be challenging for us to think about this one. And one of the best ways to do that is by going and being on the mission field or talking to missionaries and hearing what, who, with whom you have to partner and how that looks like. I haven't been extensively on missions, but I've been able to be lots of different places. And when you're there, you're not like, you see a Christian, you're like, you're a Christian too? This is awesome! You know, it's not like, could you tell me what your view on, you know, the end times is? And what kind of, what's your favorite song that you sing at worship? Oh, you're one of them. I'm going to go find another Christian, right? You, you just don't have that luxury. So I do think for us, this can be a challenging one um, to kind of think about and what um, Catholicity looks like. Um, one of the books, um, The Enduring Community, uses a little different categories to talk about this, but it, their application is this. See, by God's grace, God identifies with his people. He's reconciled us. He's called us to himself. He says, you're my people. I see you as saints. You're my adopted children. has all these beautiful images, and we, we identify with him. And then we identify with each other, kind of that Catholicity, that union, unity piece. And uh, again, just to, to pick, because this is for a long time um, how we think about things. Again, we often think about the church, about us. So here's, here's something. How many times has this refrain been heard on the way out of Sunday morning service? Well, I guess today was okay. I just didn't get really that much out of the service today. This comment may betray the true motive for attending in the first place. People act as if the service of worship was for them. It's not. The reason believers gather is because they are infatuated with their Lord. They gather because they owe him their lives, their duty, and their devotion. The question has nothing to do whether or not we got anything out of our particular worship service. The question is, did he get anything out of us? 
And then it also takes, that's kind of the vertical part of worship, but then also this horizontal, we can also say, you know what, no one really reached out to me today. I kind of felt alone. And that can happen. And I hope it doesn't. But it can. But in, in our worst moments, that's true. In our best, we come in and go like, you know what, I'm here today. And I'm going to find that person who's a guest. Or I'm going to find that person who looks like they're alone. And I'm going to leave here realizing that I have reached out to some people and welcomed them as Jesus welcomes me. So as we think about this, we're trying to, again, think about how the vertical dimension of the church should push us out into love for each other. And so often we get it flipped. And consumerism, unintentional um, consumerism, can sometimes impact how we love one another and how we view the church. Rather than saying, this is God who is using his church to perfect me and to use me to help perfect others, that we can go and love the world in such a way that they go, man, look how they love one another. Not just in their local community, but look, you know, they don't badmouth other churches. They don't speak poorly of them. They don't act like they're better than them. So uh, I think there's some real specific ways we can apply this. Uh, any other thoughts before we move on? All right, if you go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So I think Sean's teaching on what are the marks of the church. Uh, is it the true teaching of the word? Then you do say like, well, about which doctrine, right? And I think there's been this historical kind of, uh, if it's revelation, regeneration, um, there were several R's and my brain's not recalling the others, uh, the deity and necessity of Christ's death. Uh, and resurrection. Um, those are the things. Some have also put the Apostles' Creed, like true adherence to the Apostles' Creed, not just saying it because you say it, but like, yeah, we believe these things. Um, I think those are at the roots. And that, again, that's where it gets harder for us when it gets further out on some of these tertiary things. Um, and can we be gracious and hold them lightly and still be have convictions and say, yeah, my conviction, that's why I, I'm here. Um, Okay, if you'd advance to the next slide, one church. So in Ephesians 4, he, he talks about, there, again, if there's one head, one body, one baptism, one faith, uh, he's talking about the whole idea that there's, the church is one. Again, he's talking about the church invisible, though that oneness often will have local expressions. Um, this is what the Westminster Confession says. This is chapter 26, section 2. Saints by profession are bound to maintain an holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God offers opportunities to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So you might be going, wait, that doesn't do anything. But at the very end, right, all people in all places who have the name of Jesus. Um, so again, that the oneness will transcend our local denomination or local church, let alone our no, local denomination. Um, one one uh, commentator, systematic theologian guy named Louis Burkhoff, he says, um, it, in view of the present divisions of the church, it's quite natural that the question should arise whether these do not militate against the doctrine of the unity of the visible church. 
In answer to this, it may be said that some divisions, such as those caused by differences of locality or of language, are perfectly compatible with the unity of the church. But others, such as those which originate in doctrinal perversions or sacramental abuses, do really impair that unity. Now again, there's discernment, right? What then becomes a sacramental abuse versus a difference, and doctrinal perversion versus a doctrinal difference. Um, and just having, that's where I think as we understand some of church history and can see the faithfulness of brothers and sisters who have had differing views on certain issues and yet still have been faithful to the Lord and his mission helps us show that graciousness, I think, to others instead of kind of being so tight. Um, and yet again, having convictions. And I will say that's something the Lord has done in my life. He's helped me maintain my convictions and begin to be more gracious towards those who have other views. Um, who are brothers and sisters in Christ. The question may still rise whether the one invisible church ought not to find expression in a single organization. It can hardly be said that the word of God explicitly requires this, and history has shown this to be infeasible and also of questionable worth. Um, so again, sometimes I think how we then think, well, then if we're going to do this, then we just need to have one church and that be it. Well, again, the language differences, the nationalities, I don't think that applies necessarily. I don't think it's feasible in our sinful, broken world. But can we be people who can hold these strong convictions and also with great love welcome those who are in the broader part of Christ and maybe our narrow stream of, of church theology and polity? So a couple of minutes left for questions, but I, I hope you see how these four attributes that have been part of the church from the very beginning are significant and necessary. And again, you may be bent towards one of them, right? You may be like, I don't know, I'm really, I'm all more I'm all about apostolic. And the rest of me are like, yeah, I'm just more about one, you know? And, and others are like, no, I'm about holy. Like, again, you can see how, how you're wired is going to bring you towards one, and we need all four. And we need each other who have different emphases to make sure we don't drift off just into our favorite one. Questions, comments before we wrap up? All right, well, let me pray for us. Father, make this true. Make this true not only for Redeemer, that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, but that we live that way. Make that not only true for Redeemer, but for Eastern Carolina Presbytery. Not only for Eastern Carolina Presbytery, but for the Presbyterian Church in America, not only for our denomination, but for the whole worldwide church, so that as we love one another well, rather than always having um, sometimes debates and discussions that are less than kind and godly, though we often need to still discuss differences uh, that could be heated, May the world see a people who are committed to the beauty of Jesus and the good news of the gospel and that we could join with them and join with churches from the beginning who could make this confession so that the world might know us by our love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.